Psalm 46. God is our fortress. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alma, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We are studying Psalm 46 today. I should tell you that we, uh, in our worship planning process, had decided that October we would just kind of, I actually took uh, requests. So, you know, I said, well, okay, what would you like to hear about this, this month before we begin talking about all the Christmas and Advent stuff? And uh, this was, was suggested to me. I suspect because of its famous line, be still and know that I am God. But I want you to know, person who suggested it, Courtney, that this was a bit of a scripture study challenge. This, is, this was a tough one. And I guess it's a lesson for us to remember that the, uh, uh, the Bible may have little phrases that mean a lot to us, but when we put them in context, it challenges us to see them in a new light. And so the theme that I've drawn from this message, uh, from this reading rather today, is that this is the psalm that is written for Israel. And we'll talk about that a little more in a minute. Most of you probably recognize it as the beginning uh, or the foundation for the words to the famous Martin Luther hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And uh, it's appropriate we should mention that at this time because we're really close to Reformation Sunday, which is when we usually sing that hymn and remember that he courageously launched what became a reformation that the church was in desperate need of. May I say the church needs reformation about every 20 years or so, in my opinion. And so we're about due for another one, probably. But in any case, this passage is uh, known for its application in Martin Luther's song, but it is also a uh, song that is used along with 47 and 48 in what appears to have been a sort of production that was put on at the temple in order to celebrate uh, God's deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrians in the time of King Hezekiah. Um, the Psalms are, are peculiar in that they are mostly penned by David, but not entirely. King David didn't write them all, and yet he, in effect, created the worship hymnal that they used. And so in a time of, of 
I wouldn't say Reformation, but as it, in a time after David's uh, rule had ended, after his death, they would sometimes make additions to the hymnal. And these psalms then would be those that were written by other people, and they would use them in a different way. So in this case, the, the psalm has a somewhat different feel to it. And it's been the scholar's opinion that 30, uh, 46, 47, and 48 were in fact uh, programs that celebrated God's deliverance of Israel under times of particular distress. Now, in my mind, what this psalm immediately drew me to was the passage in the book of Revelation that we've been studying in the virtual Bible study that my daughter and I have been presenting, where Israel is described as a lady. In fact, a lady who has given birth to the Savior, and so we've kind of come to the conclusion, that is, the scholars have come to the conclusion that, that the lady referred to in Revelation uh, in around chapter 12 is, in fact, uh, a representation of the nation of Israel because this is the place from whom our Savior Jesus comes. And I'm mindful as I hear these words of how they are driven out during the great tribulation described in the book of Revelation. They're driven out of Jerusalem by the Antichrist. And for a time, Jerusalem is in literal darkness as well as a spiritual darkness because it feels as though God has departed Jerusalem and it is overrun by the enemy. And Israel's remnant of faithful have been driven into the wilderness to wait out the three years or so, uh, three and a half years of the great tribulation. So this is the essence of my interpretation of this passage, that it is a prophetic passage that refers to their deliverance during the darkest time that will ever occur in human history. And so it's very prophetic in its expression. So that's kind of the groundwork. But trust me, we're not, it's going to get more interesting because we'll take the words down and, and really look at them. But I just wonder if the people who have suffered through the recent hurricanes and floods might have thought of these words, you know, during the worst of the storms. I, I've never rode out a hurricane, but I've met people who have, and they assure me that there's nothing so terrifying as hours and hours of 125 or 150 mile an hour winds just pounding the place where you are hiding and the, the helplessness that you feel when you are confined to this space where you're just hoping it lasts through the storm. And these people that we hear about in the most recent storm would have probably been praying even if they weren't prayers as a rule, they were probably praying and they may have prayed this sort of prayer that we just heard in this passage, this prayer that says, Lord, I'm terrified. I am now up against something so big that I feel entirely and completely helpless. And then they hear the voice of God say, be still and know that I am God. I wonder if the people of Israel who will be perhaps in Petra, that's where a lot of the scholars think they're going to hide out the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. I wonder if they'll pray these 
passages from 46, 47, and 48 every day. I wonder if these people in the Pacific Rim who have experienced the tsunamis where the ocean comes miles inland and picks up everything and sweeps it back out into the sea, I wonder if they would pray like they do in these psalms. One of the troubles with being human is that we've controlled as much as we possibly can and it feels good to think we're in control. And sooner or later, no matter who you are, no matter how completely in control you are, you'll find yourself up against something bigger. And this is the purpose, I believe, in these passages from the Bible to remind us that God is our refuge and our strength, that God is bigger still than the worst thing we can imagine. And so what happens then when we hear these words? Do we think of our personal lives or do we think about things on a more global scale? Well, today I wanna challenge you to think on a more global scale. The beautiful thing about scripture and our relationship with God is that it is highly personal, but sometimes we need to think globally. Sometimes we need to think about what the Bible is saying to us about human history, human activity, and what it says to us about God's involvement in the human story. And I don't know about you, but it gives me a great deal of comfort to view our times through God's lens, to view history through God's lens like most pastors, I've developed a great affection for history, and I've studied as much about the past as I have about the present and the future, if not more in some cases. I read the Bible with the great enthusiasm and love for the Word, and yet it would mean less to me if I didn't put it in the context of history and the future, since the Bible is the story of the human relationship with God from the very beginning to the very end of this biblical era. It's an epic to be sure, and it's about our global condition. This vision that is being given in this passage is of a world out of control, about nations out of control. And so what we look to God for when it feels like the world is out of control is a refuge that only God can provide and strength that only God can exercise. Meaning that when we see war and famine, earthquakes, tsunamis, when we see the political upheaval and the darkness of evil all around us, we feel helpless. I spent a lot of time in nursing homes the last week or so as I make monthly visits to the nursing homes to lead worship and I challenged those worshipers there by saying, how many of you walk down the hall in your beautiful residence and every other room either has CNN playing or Fox News playing around the clock? I know, because I visit a lot of nursing homes and hospital rooms, and I can tell you that it's, it's kind of amazing how many of us are obsessed with news. And the news is on all the time, and it's playing over and over again, 24-7. And you know, there's an old saying in the newspaper business, if it bleeds, it leads. 
Have you ever heard that? That's just their way of saying nothing sells like bad news. And so they're always looking for bad news because that'll keep you tuned in and that's what the advertisers are counting on and that's what this news industry is about. And so what could make you feel more powerless than watching the news channels 24-7? I suggest many times when I'm visiting people in their homes and CNN or Fox News is on, I will go in and say, where's the old movie channel? When's the last time you watched Singing in the Rain? You know, when's the last time you watched Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? You know, it's just a simple way to say in my own weird way, be still and know that he is God. What can you really do about any of it except worry and fret? How unproductive does your life become when it's absorbed with worry and fret? Does it change anything? After you've hoarded everything you can think of and put it in your bunker so that you're ready like the preppers for the end of the world, then what do you do? Do you keep prepping? Or are you done? Well, here's the good news from the Bible. There is a God who is bigger than all of this. A God who is our river of life. In verses 4 to 6, it sounds a little bit like Isaiah 47 that describes this river of life flowing from the temple. You know, when I said that it reminded me of the uh, Revelation passages where all hell is breaking loose, literally. I was thinking about that as I was preparing my notes, and I was thinking about how in Isaiah 47, it describes that very temple that is the source of the abomination of desolation. In other words, during this last era, these last few years of the era of the Bible, there's going to come a time when the temple that represents the very presence of God on earth is going to be abused and misused by Satan in a way that is without precedent in human history. The temple's been an abomination at different times in the history, but nothing like what is predicted in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And at this time, we are reminded that the temple will be a river of life, a source for the river of life. What could that possibly mean? What I really find interesting about that passage is is that wherever the Bible refers to, especially in the Old Testament, the rivers flowing from the temple, it is meant to be an absurd statement. Because, in fact, Jerusalem has very limited water resources. The Jerusalem uh, sort of mountain, Mount Zion, that all of Jerusalem rests on is actually very limited in its natural water sources. And so throughout the thousands of years of its existence, there have been public works products, uh, projects rather, to bring in water from other places, aqueducts and water tunnels and things have been built. And all of this is very fascinating. And if you're going to Israel with me next year, you'll get to see all of this. It's very interesting. But what it tells us is is that apart in, in every way, Israel, in particular Jerusalem, is a particularly unstrategic place to hold out. 
It's so classic God, by the way. It's just, if you read your Bible, you find out that this is just what God delights in. He always picks unlikely heroes to do his work. He always picks people that shouldn't succeed. And then with his help, of course, they do. And of course, God picks the most unstrategic, unlikely place on all the earth to make the center of all of his activity. And it's Jerusalem. And they've been trying to pipe in the water. They've been trying to make it strategic in its own right for thousands of years. It's been the most hotly contested piece of real estate in human history for thousands of years. And it will continue to be for the foreseeable future. And what's really interesting is, is without water flowing from outside, it would be in a desperate situation. Why do you think I'm telling you this fascinating bit of travelogue information? Because the Bible says that the Temple Mount will be a source of water one day. And it really isn't describing H2O, it's describing the water that is life. Because as you all know, we can live without food for quite a long time, but we can only go for a couple of days without water. Water is the essential element to existence on earth. And this is meant to be a metaphor that says to us that the very source of life, eternal life, flows from the place where God dwelt on earth, where God is present on earth in the literal and figurative description that we associate with Jesus Christ and the history of the people of the Bible. So what does this mean? It means that when that darkest moment comes in all of human history, when the world seems as though it is its complete end, that will be the time when the light and life of our God flows from the temple in Jerusalem. This passage is a reminder to us of this truth. And what I would try to say to you today to kind of bring this full circle is that when you think of this passage and when you think about what you've heard today, what I would prefer for you to walk away understanding is, is that your application is this. Number one, God is bigger than world governments and world events and world economies and all of that. And so when you're tempted to be afraid that the world is in a great and terrible mess, when you're tempted to be afraid that all hell is breaking loose, remember this passage. It's felt that way many times in human history, and God has always been sovereign over it all. God chooses the timing. God chooses the delivery. God is the source of life eternal. And God has given us a gift, and that is a sure way to experience that life eternal. Through Jesus, we are given the water of life that flows from the temple. The temple was for the Jews a symbol of God's deliverance and grace and mercy, but it was dependent upon them coming to the temple to make the necessary sacrifices in order that they could get right with God. Jesus one day presented himself at the temple as the last sacrifice. We call that Palm Sunday. And at that moment declared that this system of sacrifices has come to an end. 
because it's done. This is why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. To telestai, it is finished, paid in full. No more debts to be paid. It's done. And so now life flows not so much from the temple, but through Jesus, who went to the temple to present himself as the source of eternal life and the last sacrifice. And as Christian believers, we are challenged then to recognize in the midst of the world's drama and all these terrifying events, many of which we have no control over, most of which we have no control over, that we have been given life eternal. We are being challenged to understand through this passage that when all hope seems lost, we are to think in terms that God gives us globally that we are only as lost as Jesus is because we put our faith in Jesus. Therefore, we're fine. Yes, there will be pain. There will be suffering. There will be death. What we're told to remember is, is that we should look at this globally, but not just globally, but eternally. And to recognize that while there will be suffering, pain, and death during the last days of the biblical era, the truth is, is that we have eternal life, therefore we think eternally. We think beyond this existence and its many setbacks and its many difficulties. We recognize that when God says, be still and know that I am God, it is the God who created it all from nothing by the mere utterance of a word from God's mouth. Therefore, there's nothing about your existence that God can't manage simply with the word from his mouth. And as the Apostle John has told us in John's gospel in the very beginning of chapter 1, the word was with God, the word is God, and the word has dwelt among us, and his name is Jesus. The word is the very expression of the mind of God, and therefore the heart and mind of God has been given to you through the Holy Spirit. And what we're told to understand is that Emmanuel means God with us, and God is with us. That a refuge is not so much a place that we go to to hide from the terrors of the world, but our refuge is within us because it is the very nature of our God, the Word of God, the Logos, in us. And that is because Jesus, our Lord, our Christ and Messiah, has delivered us from sin and death and given us new life as equals with him in the eyes of God. Bottom line, you have a refuge no matter what terrors you face. Whether they be the most localized terrors in the most private moments of your life or whether they be the global things that scare you when you watch them on the news, you have a refuge. And for generations, people have withstood martyrdom, they've withstood wars and invasions, they've withstood natural disasters like volcanoes, earthquakes, and tsunamis, they have withstood depressions and financial breakdowns, they've withstood terroristic government and maniacs like Hitler, they've withstood all of this throughout the generations because of the faith that was born within them through their surrender to Christ as their Savior. Doesn't ease the pain of your body, but it saves your soul for eternity. 
And people have claimed that, embraced it even, and so should we. God is our refuge because he has dwelt in us after having dwelt among us and borne upon the cross our sin so that we could experience all of that for eternity. So today's message is hopefully one that gives you joy because it has two promises. There will be hardship and you have a refuge. Let us pray. Almighty God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the ways that you have spoken beyond what my mind and flesh can produce. Lord, and ingrain in your folks here that which is entirely from you and erase whatever has been my foolish weakness so that they might be blessed and you might be glorified. Amen.